0: Welcome to Frendendum, uh, with Matt and a failure. <laughs> with Matt and Old old Bones McGee. I'm, uh, they call me Mr. Bones. I'm the blue singer who's just a skeleton. I can't do anything. I'm just the Bones.
1: We signed him up for Bones school once and, uh, you know, didn't,
0: didn't even, uh, pass the carpal tunnel test. I miss the bones, children, and I don't do much. I'm missing my arms, my skin, I'm even missing most of my legs. But that's alright. I'm just sitting on front of my porch, whiskey bottle in my left hand, old Will, old Wilson guitar on my right, and I'm basking in sunlight. In, in two, my younger days, I, when I was a flesh haver, I enjoyed a bit of play with the kids. At the orphanage where I worked, I used to play the most beautiful songs. An old blues that my mama told me. A blues about working, about playing, and about fighting white supremacy. For the kids. We were a revolutionary bunch. That's how I lost all my skin and flesh. Racists got me. I'm Mr. Bones. Anyway, that's the tale of Mr. Bones. (laughs) It's a good story. It's a
1: good opener to our episode. I mean, we're uh, really interested in, like, you know, appreciating folk music, folk tales. And uh, Mr. Bones is a, you know, classic Dutch children's story.
0: It's actually a a game for the Sega Saturn.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. yeah.
0: 1996, um, a, a platformer called Mr. Bones came out, which was about a blues singer who got reanimated on the night of... on the the Dios, Dios de la muerte. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he gets revived by a necromancer. And he's the only good skeleton in the graveyard full of bad skeletons. And together with his trusty Gibson SG guitar and only the most powerful of licks at his disposal, uh, he has to defeat the evil that is surging and threatening rural America.
1: One of the most controversial parts of that game were uh, the fact that the collectible system consisted of a uh, revolutionary blues song uh and you had to collect all 1,000 notes to the song in order to get it uh, to play. Otherwise, the the game had no soundtrack.
0: Yeah, it was like one of the first procedural-generated soundtracks, Uh, and you got like one guitar note um, per five minutes of play. There Mm -hmm. were 1,000 levels. It was um, a test of patience, if anything. Yeah, and also mu- um,
1: much like the the work of dismantling capitalism so it was thematically appropriate
0: exactly um there have been some scholar uh, scholarly interests in the game for telling like a a parallel story to the um, to the slaver the railroad uh, the underground slavery railroad that existed mm-hmm. in the Ante- antebellum period mm-hmm. um, I'm not ki- I'm not kidding by the way there is actually some. <laughs> And, and i i was I was last week I was just looking through browsing like my university's databases um data why did I see databases because it's because you're cyber as hell uh, databases accessing processing information looking Do you know until video games. college
1: I w- was under the impression that the underground railroad was literally... A railroad that had been dug under Choo-choo. the the northeastern seaboard, like I, I, I had this imagination that because I, you know, couldn't be bothered to like look it up, so in my head I imagined that it was this basically like a secret abolitionist alliance between the African American slaves and Chinese immigrants and their sort of shared plight of worker exploitation and they built a literal railroad to Canada <laughs> underground
0: if only it would have been the biggest fuck you to uh <laughs> to planters like where where like i don't know like um wide um mr Whitepox, he he's called wakes up one morning and looks over his his plantation and goes like where is everyone and in the distance here here is like the the chimney of a train going choo choo and everyone's just having fun like yep. 5000 free people just having fun it, on the
1: train yeah and it's a like a very high pressure steam engine so it looks like uh that little dirt trail in a cartoon with uh, like when a mole's digging it's oh, yeah. like a little little like dirt mound just like
0: crossing the united states and then he notices, like, he takes a step forward down from his porch, um, and he notices, like, hey, what's a, what's the railway doing in the, middle of my, in the middle of my ground? And then he just gets smashed apart by a train. Yeah,
1: yeah they built the train track through his house overnight.
0: Yeah, it was they were very <laughs> sneaky. You know, they were just very good at what they did.
1: Yeah, I mean, people who are committed to a task uh, improve at it, which is... I guess a t- true tautology, you know, in, interestingly enough, this last week working at Starbucks, have like, has really influenced my artistic process in that what I noticed from the experience of working in this coffee shop is that like, you're given very, very loose guidelines of what to do just because if you had, if you were told the totality of how to do it right all at once, You would just, it'd be meaningless. Like, you wouldn't be able to copy it or follow it. So, they give you broad tasks, and as you improve, like, they'll remind you to do stuff. And I don't think this is intentional. I just think it's like the person who's watching me do it sees the mistakes as I go and, like, reminds me to do things. But what I noticed is that the only way to actually do the work well was to not try to adjust to what they were saying but just to hear the correction and continue the process and then I found that each morning when I woke up and did it again my brain had just like automatically integrated that new experience or that correction into the process so it was like realizing the automatic iterative process of the mind independent of like will was really fascinating and i'm starting to think about how to
0: incorporate that into my art process you should uh check out some seminal transhumanist works because that sounds like uh like the the robotization of the working process is or, and like the spiritualism behind that, like vague spiritualism, very loose use of that term, uh, is a lot where there's a lot of what, um, what's her name called again? I always forget the people I want to quote. I remember their works, but never their names, which is bad. Uh, One moment, please. Nothing is
1: good or bad, but thinking makes it so. so it's only Donna Haraway. Bad if... Donna Haraway. There you go. Donna Haraway, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I I brought this up to my friend Heather and she mentioned like 1960s, 70s, like modernist painters, like abstract painters and how some of them followed this process of, I think it was called automatism that essentially they tried to automate the process of art in a similar way, but they didn't have like the language of that we have now of like technology and procedural generation. But I think they were trying to do a similar thing of like directly tapping, like bypassing the conscious mind and directly tapping into the subconscious was the way they described it in very like psychoanalytic terms. But I was watching a lecture by this person at Galaxy Kate yesterday about procedural generation in games. And what I realized is it's much closer to that. It isn't that you're going to reach, if you do it right, you're going to get this pure spiritual energy on the page. It's more like seeing your mind, seeing your life experience, seeing yourself as the algorithm through which an experience is being processed and then the act of communicating it to a page or to the screen is fundamentally procedural and like any sort of procedural learning machine, there the iteration process happens first and the curatorial process happens afterwards.
0: Hmm. Sounds like a bunch of nerd shit to me
1: yeah it's pretty bullshit real artists are just like they paint like perfect circles and boobs and shit uh
0: real artists just look at like a, an ur noir and say that's some art and they yeah. put it in a museum and everyone's like oh man this guy's on something it's an upside down sink i've never seen this before all
1: real artists actually uh, committed uh, ritual suicide when the the uh, camera was invented, because they realized that they had been surpassed by a machine, because the true purpose of art is accurate recreation of life, and they were made obsolete. So there are no true artists anymore.
0: Uh, that's my response, just that. Um... <laughs> uh yeah just just loving that leaving that hanging there like a ghost Mm. anyway how was your
1: week (laughs) well i i feel like i just talked about my week and it's been a lot of thinking about art i guess and working and then quitting my job because my knee hurt really bad uh Mm. but i got to watch all the president's men for the first time this week have you ever seen that uh, nope. It is a film from the 1970s starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. And it's essentially a documentary thriller about Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, who were the two Washington Post reporters who did the big expose that led to the Watergate hearings and ultimately the, resi- the resignation of President Nixon. And...
0: Um, for our younger listeners, Watergate was like um, the predecessor or the precursor to Gamergate.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was uh, the original fight for ethics in, in something no previden-
0: presidential uh, in, election campaign. In
1: point yeah. of in point of fact, what it actually was was a grand conspiracy <laughs> by the American government uh, on behalf of Nixon to sabotage the Democrats over the course of like the the election the re-election campaign of president nixon and he what <laughs> what's kind of amazing is it what they found with like their their investigation was that the break-in in the watergate hotel was merely the tip of the iceberg and it was actually like the last event in a year long campaign of essentially like manipulation of the election and the film is a thriller but it's sort of shot in a very like 1970s documentarian style it has this deep focus and strong use of like cinematography to make the shots themselves and the places very visually interesting because what's going on on screen is mostly just people looking at newspapers and talking and stuff uh, but i really liked it. it was it was worth a watch and it won a bunch of academy awards when it came out
0: hmm. so is it's, it like... it's
1: basically the zero dark 30 of its time
0: yeah, did they like find Hillary's emails in that documentary?
1: No, but what's fa- what is fascinating uh, was that there were whole scenes about essentially like the the, re- the how they get onto the conspiracy is it just so happens that both the two reporters are because they're young reporters, their boss assigned both of them to the case instead of just one person. And the big break is like when one of them calls and is lied to and then the other guy calls and gets a different story and that's when they know they're on to something. And that's like the big break is they just get told different things. And there's a whole they could then go into this whole section where they're trying to find someone in order to get confirmation that this person was involved. And it involves like a dramatically shot scene of Robert Redford in front of a, of an entire wall of like phone books, (laughs) just like going through the phone books, trying to find information and then being given by like a secretary. Like we don't have any clips on this guy, you know, no old clips being like old newspaper articles by the Washington Post about this person. But here's a photograph, and it, like, lists where they're from. And then he's just, like, going through the phone book to find them. And they find him, and he calls them, and that's the big break. And...
0: Okay, so, like, the, the lead is essentially one guy going, Yeah, we ordered pizza for dinner! And the other guy went, Yeah, we got some burgers for dinner! And Robert Redford went, like, Hold on, just a minute! Yeah, basically. Like a Danganronpa-style mini game, Like a, a screen and words floating through the air. And he's like, you got that wrong! And he shoots the words straight out of his mouth. Well, what's
1: it. what's fascinating, what's hilarious is like, they, Robert Redford and uh, Dustin Hoffman, and the, the way the whole thing is shot, it's very serious and somber. I mean, it's meant to be a thriller. But... The things they're stumbling onto are just st- utter stupidity. <laughs> like, it, it's like someone called, and it's like, uh, he's like, hey, do you have any uh, you know, reports of this important person like going to the National Library to look up articles on Robert Kennedy? And she's like, oh, yeah, he was sitting here all the time. Let me go get them for you. And then she like leaves and comes back, and she's like, actually... Uh I don't know who that is. And <laughs> I actually never talk to them.
0: God, and we don't have like, any information. Goodbye. <laughs> and they're like I we're on to something. Heard <laughs> never heard of this person I've just heard about? Hmm. So it's it's basically just a paper like everyone left a huge paper trail, but the paper trail is like toilet paper stuck in people's shoes.
1: Right. So it's really no different than the, than the stuff that goes on every day now with the Trump campaign, except it had never happened before. And I think this movie itself, like, considering how popular it was, I imagine it solidified the societal consciousness of, like, the thriller and, and serious nature and conspiratorial nature of the Watergate cover-up because it paints it as this, like, heroic act of investigative journalism when, in fact, they stumbled upon, you know, a barely covered-up, like, lie by a bunch of idiots.
0: (laughs) What year was this?
1: It came out in 1976, so it was very shortly after nixon's resignation because i think nixon resigned in like 75 74 yeah so it was very yeah it was very very shortly afterwards um apparently it's part of a trilogy by the director alan bakula's uh did this then something called clute and The Parallax of You, which are
0: Excuse all
1: me? Clute?
0: Gesundheit.
1: Thanks. Uh, it's... Apparently they're his Paranoia trilogy. So this director did... Uh, he also did To Kill a Mockingbird. So, oh. Director of Paranoia Thrillers, Making Money, Politics it was a good movie i like i think i enjoyed it most for this for the uh cinematography the
0: the the uh intense men looking at phone books in offices in in really really deep focus so
1: everything is incredibly sharp and you get to see like the aesthetics of like a 1970s newsroom and the <laughs> way they use color and stuff it was really cool It was, yeah. you it was get fun like... to look at
0: you get, like, a grid map of every individual pore of a person's face, and you have to, like... Uh, the first time this documentary came out, it came with, like, a quiz, and it, said, it asked, like, um, add five, 1528 into the movie, uh, from which pore did drip a little drop of sweat? And you have to, <laughs> like, you have to fill it in, and you have to send it back, and you could win, like, a prize, which was yeah, um, the Pentagon Papers
1: yeah no definitely uh what was really cool or terrible to learn cool in a bad way was that after this all came out and it was this huge cover-up and i didn't actually even know before i watched the film how big the watergate cover-up was you're just kind of told about in school that like there was the watergate break-in and then there was a big scandal and then nixon resigned that's kind of all you are given realizing the totality of it and being like holy shit that's super fucked up all they did was let nixon resign and then his like second in command became president gerald ford became president even though the conspiracy was so complete and so total that it's entirely possible that mcgovern would have won and mcgovern was this massively progressive democratic candidate who probably would have done a lot of really good things for the country, but they didn't have a do-over election, you know? And looking back at, like, the Trump election and how often liberal pundits were like, this is going to be like Watergate and we're going to blow wide open and then we're going to do over the election and Hillary's going to win. It's like, it didn't happen that way last time. You're not even aware of your own like self-aggrandizement, how it turned out, which is shitty.
0: Yeah, and <laughs> if it's, yeah, I think I think about that a lot, and my dad uh, talks with me about that, about like when Trump resigns, and we're we both know that Pence is just gonna pick up the slack. If because... Trump resigns at all like that's not a given (laughs) he's yeah (laughs) he's too senile to to give up he's just a stubborn old man in the diaper he likes he likes a chair in the oval office it makes his back feel nice it's like one of those massage chairs he doesn't want to get out of there no i mean
1: he might get pushed out maybe but like there's nothing that's going to make him want to resign
0: yeah, like an aide is going to whisper, like, if you resign, you get to keep this chair, and you'll be like, okay, I'll do it.
1: Yeah. Anyway, that was my week, watching movies and working and thinking about art. What about you, Ruben?
0: Uh, most of my week will spend watching, uh, for, for the first time, I want to say, in years, and the first time, like, the first time ever, I've opened a Netflix account, I'm... I'm uh, I'm I'm using I'm making use of that sweet free trial month, and I'm watching all of the sweet cinematographical you know marvels I've missed out all these years, uh, and all of all of these marvels are really just Japanese drama shows about cooking and food. So uh... I've been I've been binge watching a show called Samurai Gourmet, which is all of my life right now.
1: Now, is Samurai Gourmet like Midnight Diner? Because I've watched yes. an episode of Midnight Diner. So, this is just Netflix's new vein they're tapping into, is like Slife of Life food shows from Japan.
0: Yeah, and it's like uh, Tokyo Dinner, Midnight Diner, uh, and some other shows like are all actual mangas by one guy who just okay. keeps, who really likes food, and he just likes telling stories about very domestic very minuscule uh mundane stories about taking like uh th- taking or finding pleasure and joy in in the smallest things in life which is food uh and they're just netflix has just decided to make all of him his manga all of his works into a, a running series which i'm not complaining about because they're lovely it's yeah no, super, they're it's very good lovely I watched
1: like, one, one episode of the Midnight Diner, which is the first episode they had on there. And it was, like, this lovely story of, like, reuniting a child, like, a grown-up adult's, like, childhood nostalgia with actors who, like, felt their lives had moved on and, you know, appreciating the past. There was, like, a subplot of, like, support and allyship for someone who was transgender. It was really cool.
0: Oh dang! Yeah, I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna watch that uh, after I finish Samurai Gourmet, and that show is very. It's it's. It kind of catches you off guard with how nice it is, and it makes you tear up because it just it's so wholesome in every every sense of the word. Like the first episode starts out with um, an old man sleeping and suddenly getting. Uh, awoken by an alarm clock, and he rushes awake and he and he stammers, and he fr- frantically uh, talks to himself like, "Oh, why didn't I wake up earlier? Why didn't? Why wasn't I woken up? Why didn't she wake me up? Oh, oh, oh!" And he like rushes to uh, get himself dressed for work, and he uh, runs into the living room, and he finds his wife, uh, and he asks her, "Why didn't you wake me up sooner?" And his wife responds, "Well, because." This is the first day you can, you know, sleep late. And the camera zooms in or pans to, like, a nice bouquet of flowers that's on a table. And on it, it says, like, happy first day of retirement, Chief Kasumi. And it then zooms in on this man, this old man's face. And he looks so exasperated because he, like, it's clear that he's, like, lost direction at, like, this critical moment in his life. Like where he just gets to enjoy, a, a a life without you know having to work every day, and he's sad about it. So, the first thing he does is he steps outside, deciding determined to just take a walk. He goes for a walk, and after leaving the front, like closing the front gate behind him, he takes two steps and he looks into the camera and just wonders, just wonders out loud like a whisper in his voice. I have nowhere to go. Which is, like, super devastating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he just takes the usual route he would have taken every day to his work, to, like, the train station. He comments that he can now walk slower than usual, which is a strange feeling because all the other times, all the other days, he had to, like, uh, pick up the pace a bit and and uh, put, a little, uh, put a little spring in his step. But now he can just... Walk in in a in a brisk pace, not even brisk, just a slow pace, and he turns around, uh, and and laments this new, this newfound emptiness in his life, and he and he, stumbles really upon, uh, a little Showa era diner, a little little restaurant he's never seen before in all his, hectic life beforehand. So he's too focused on work, so he couldn't like even peer to the left of him to see you know, what actually is in these buildings that I mm. that have become such a daily sight to me. And he just wanders in and he doesn't even know how to behave himself. Like, uh, he, he wants, he, he sees a poster with, like, we have cold beer on it and he's unsure if he should order it because he thinks that it would be bad, you know, bad image for an old man to, to just d- drink during the day. Day drinking, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> for some reason, his mind wanders to, like, what would a samurai do in my place? And immediately, like, the scenes go from, like, a, dim- a nice dimly lit atmosphere, the inside of a diner, goes to, like, intense green-yellow lighting, like, uh, like they went back two centuries. And he looks behind him, and through... The little paper curtain that is the do- that is that the, the uh, serves of the door walks in this like massive man of a samurai, like hand resting on the, the hilt of a sword. Uh, the other like playing with the with the uh, with like a jug of sake attached to his belt. And he just walks in and looks around and goes like, hmm, sake. He just yells out loud, sake. I want, I want to drink sake and he sits down and he just it's like two minutes of this very handsome man very gruff samurai uh just drinking sake in the most barbarian way ever he just pours it he he smashes the cup into his face and it like splatters all over him and he like just just drink he slurps it all down and he goes like ah and then the old man who's like mouth agape just constant disbelief like is shaken out of his reverie by the waitress who asks him like what would you like to order and he smashes his fist down on the desk and goes i want a cold beer which so is, is like is the
1: whole show this one man or is it different yes character okay this so is, it's, 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 this l- it's like this it's this like character this man like finding direction through like the embodiment of this Imagined like character, right?
0: yeah. He, he, he finds uh this is this is like a, a huge running thread like because no one knows who, like, there's no inclination to or hint given who this samurai is, but right? In the sixth episode, he is seen reading a novel about the very first daimyo of Japan, and the right. daimyo is like a general figure. Yeah. And the, it is briefly mentioned that this daimyo or daimyo was a ronin samurai. So I'm not. I haven't finished watching the series yet, but I've a. I have a strong. I have a strong idea as to who this. Really, this culinary warrior might be. Interesting,
1: it makes me think of. Have you ever heard of the web comic by No. By is a web comic. Let me look it up really quickly. Uh, of. Every day, slice of life life stuff of this artist, uh, Rachel Kahn. And it's essentially life advice from Conan the Barbarian. And the ideas of every comic is that it's essentially the same thing. She's sitting there, faced with a situation, and Krom is there with her, giving her advice. So it's like... Um, there's one famous one where she's lying on a park bench outside, just being like, "I don't have any ideas," and then Crom's like leaning over the park bench in her face, being like, "Then you must go get some." So he's, you know, he's the embodiment of her like adventurous spirit and confidence, and it's uh, it's really charming. We should put one up in the a link to one in the description. I really uh, bright bike is probably uh a similar like equivalent that you might get a kick out of
0: yeah yeah but this is like uh i want to i want to talk more about this series because it's taking me over there is um the third episode which is just a dramatic roller coaster uh just a huge emotional really ravines and peaks and valleys and mountains all over and After like after the first five minutes, I was never the same It starts out with the the titular character um, Tatsumi or Takeshi Kasumi Okay, walking home running home even and this like a 60 year old man jogging uh, jogging home to the train station Worrying that he might be late. And this is like anxiety, suspense. Like, will our main character make it? Will our hero reach his destination in time? And yes, he does. He reaches the train station just in time. But then a flashback happens to where he just ran from. His friend's house. And he was playing Go with his friend. And his friend had given him, after defeating him in Go, a couple of... Go... Four dummies, handbooks. Okay. And in a stark realization, he reali- he just it hits him like a like a smash of thunder and lightning. I've forgotten my I've forgotten the books. So he turns back around and starts running back to his friend's house. So it's like loss. It's a it's it's an embodiment of loss, of wanting to wanting to keep something precious to him. At the at the possible expense of uh, ruining a friendship forever because if that friend were to find the books in his home still then you know you don't know what would happen to the re- relationship would it sour would nothing happen it's a risk our hero is not willing to take so he runs back to the friend but then halfway across the street he turns back around and says no i have to be home in time and he runs back to the train station determined to Take this risk. He's ready to come what may, to say come what may to all the consequences. But then he falls. My God, Matthew, he falls. And it's like this out of... Like, not even a centered camera. It's He is slightly to the right in a darkened street. And you can just see him topple over, this old man. And when that happened, I I yelped. It was horrific to see our hero fall under his own emotional and mental strain. And these, this is like the, the opening to a 15-minute episode. And I just had to, I just turned it off. I couldn't, I couldn't continue. Because it's just so heavy. And as he lay, as, as our hero lay, lays there on the, on the asphalt, he sees his samurai brother, his, his hero of his mind, stroll down the sands of a nearby beach and he says the only shelter that I need is one that protects me from the morning dew and resolute and inspired invigorated even by his hero he decides to not catch the train home and instead cast his fortunes to the wind and find nearby shelter. It's an adventure he embarks on, the first time he's ever been alone, anywhere, away from his wife, away from his family, away from his friends, away from the people he works with, the people who once called, he called his allies, are now nowhere to be seen, and for the first time in 60 years, he comments, he is now truly alone, but it's not a bad thing, Matthew, oh no, it's never a bad thing to be alone. Because he is alone, but never lonely. So he wakes up in an inn, foreign to him. The keeper of the inn says good morning, and he says good morning back. And he walks out, taking a walk. And he stumbles upon a little fishing warehouse. Where he sees young men, and young women as well, carry boxes of fish, cutting them open, preparing them for delivery. Or for the nearby restaurants, because this is a fishing hamlet, you see. And all the inns and bed and breakfasts, and all the care homes, they just need, they need, you know, they need their, they need their fish. And invigorated by the sea, he suddenly is overcome with a ravenous lust for fish. He needs to eat mackerel. He wants dried mackerel, Matthew. So he returns home to the inn, and without even asking, maybe because this is a prescient innkeeper, she says, We're having dried mackerel for breakfast. And we enter a memory of Takeshi Kasumi. Do you know, you want to know what that memory is, Matthew? Yes, yes, I do. That memory was of a youth of ignorance, of inexperience, of a time where Takeshi Kasumi did not enjoy the taste of fish. It was a hot summer day. He was in a fishing hamlet, not dissimilar to this one, with his friends enjoying the holidays. As they played on the beach playing whack the watermelon i don't know that game but apparently it's a thing where you like blindfold someone on the beach and they have to like whack a watermelon or a coconut uh while you scream directions at them uh i never did this with my friends but i'm sure it's a thing okay um yeah games like that and playing tag and swimming in the ocean they retire rest For a quick repose inside of the inn a nice lady serves them a breakfast it has rice it has seaweed it has wasabi pickles and it has dried mackerel his friends dig in but he Takeshi Kasumi does not he does not want to try the fish even though he sees the expressions of elation on The means of his companions. Only through peer pressure does he deign to try some fish, something he told himself he does not enjoy. And he takes a bite, and seconds pass. But these peasants are like eons in which electrons die and new atoms are born. And happiness appears on his face. He yells, This is delicious! And he continues to eat the fish and that's where the memory ends and again we see the old man Takeshi Kasumi sitting on a low table or at a low table and the innkeeper puts in front of him a plate of dried mackerel and he thanks her it is a heartfelt thanks so sincere so full of gratitude that yes this is everything that this man wants at the current time and again he digs in and the tear falls out of his eye and he looks up and his samurai companion is sitting across from him at the same low table enjoying fish he says this fish tastes like the sea of a place filled with life and i'm not making this up this is something that he actually says while he's um while he's trying to fish the sea, so full of life, I can taste everything that has brought us humans, everything that has brought to the earth. I can taste the sun, I can taste the sun which dried the fish that I'm now eating. I can taste fish. That which the sea has borne for me, I am always grateful. It is a perfect coalescence of sky and sea, of light, of 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 the material and the immaterial, of light and darkness, combined into a single, yummy, fish. My God, Matthew, this series is something. And I'm yeah, not they... trying to grandstand here. This is this is actually how it makes me feel.
1: It the way you you describe it and you narrate it sounds it's hard to tell from how it sounds whether it's something you experienced or something you wrote because you've totally embodied the character that was really lovely to listen to Ruben thank you
0: I feel a deep deep connection with Takeshi kasumi a man who really has lost all direction in life but he manages to get it all together by just focusing on the joie de vivre on the joy of life itself of taking it carpy gem crappy dime <laughs> crap
1: taking he's just crappy diamond all the time crappy
0: diamond crappy diamond all the time living his life on the heartline.
1: line it's interesting that that this should come into my life now because i, I realized last night that i was in a very similar position That I had sort of reached the end of the day and done everything that needed to be done. And there was nothing of immediate crisis before me. And I found myself unable to decide what to do because I was unaware of how to live beyond my habits. And I think that's a really common thing. This prison of pattern that we get ourselves into, and particularly the way society pressures us, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the world is bigger than any one pattern, that it's a bunch of different patterns put together and we can shape our lives into different
0: fuck